continue our study on the life of Elisha, the prophet, as we left off. We left off last time where Elijah had been taken up to heaven and Elisha had taken over the role of prophet from him. And now we come to chapter 3. So before we look at this, let's pray together. Father, as we come now to look upon your word of truth, we do ask that again that you would open our eyes that we may see you as you really are, that you would open our ears that we may hear and understand the message of your truth, and that you would open our hearts to receive this message, that we may not just be hearers of your word, but also doers, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 3, let's read this together. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned for 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. And after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, so that at that time King Joram sent out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. But what route shall we attack, he asked, through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? So Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Saphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, Because it is the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But now bring me a harvest. While the harvest was playing, he had the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, This is what the Lord says. Make the valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. 
you will see neither wind nor rain, yet the valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will be overthrown. You will, you will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. Next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, there it was, water, flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have found, fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kerhereth was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. Then the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me read to you uh, a news report from the BBC website. On Wednesday morning, 23rd of December 2009, so Christmas past, the emergency services were called out at 10.30pm after two men in their, tw in their 20s slipped on snow below Clogwen Station, that is in Snowdonia. Crews from IF Valley said the pair were difficult to find because they were poorly equipped, with no maps or lights. Again, the pair were dressed in just tracksuits and trainers, despite Arctic conditions on the mountain. Mr. Jones, a spokesman for IF Valley, said the pair were lucky to be alive, but they had been found relatively quickly using a thermal imaging camera. The Lembras team, uh, which I think is Mountain Rescue, had followed the men's tracks through the snow to find them very cold and shocked. The men from Warrington had been on the mountain since early on Wednesday morning. They and a, and a pair from Tuesday, which is a different story but similar, all had been given sound advice about their failure to have proper clothing and equipment. I don't think we'll see, they'll be seeing them again in Snowdonia anytime soon, Mr. Jones added. The mountains are a great place to be if people go properly equipped and prepared and take heed of the conditions and the weather forecast. 
What we, we want people to enjoy the mountains, but idiots like these give everyone else a bad name. It's probably not the brightest idea in the world to go mountain climbing with new equipment during one of the coldest spells of weather our country has seen in 30 years. Indeed, you could well imagine that the two men in that report uh, set off with very good intentions, but found that their lack of preparation was very costly in the end. It, it pays to prepare well. These two men only escaped with their lives because they were able to get help from the RAF and from Mountain Rescue, who were able to find them even in the blizzards and bad weather. Their lack of pre preparation got them into trouble, but the emergency services were well prepared to deal with their problem. Now, the story we read in 2 Kings chapter 3 is, very, is, a, is a quite a similar scenario. Three kings set out for war. Yet as they are on their way, they run into a major problem. They're in a desert area and they don't have any water. Far from winning a great victory, they are steadily approaching self-inflicted disaster. They need to get rescued. Not this time by the emergency services, but by God and his word. And what a difference it makes to them as we shall see. So as we look at this uh, chapter in 2 Kings, I want to look at it in terms of simply the problem they faced, the solution to that problem, and the result of that solution. So the problem, the solution, and the result. So the first part of the problem then we find here is the king of Israel himself, as the writer describes him in the first three verses. He passes his judgment on him. Now if you remember back to chapter 1 of 2 Kings, Ahab had died. Evil King Ahab and his wife, who was married to Jezebel, of course, he has died. And his son, Ahaziah, um, had come to the throne after him, but he died very quickly. And Ahaziah had went off on the same track as his mother and father continued to, to pour pure paganism into Israel. And the result, of course, was that he died, Ahaziah. But after Ahaziah, his brother comes to the throne in Samaria. And he's a totally different kettle of fish from his father and his brother. Remember, as the author is writing this, he's not really interested in military might or political success or anything like that. What he's interested in is whether or not the king was loyal to the covenant, loyal to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And the verdict of, on Jehoram here is not good. It's not, bad, it's not as bad as it could be, but because uh, he doesn't follow his, his father and his mother in Baal worship. He even, as he records, removes the sacred stone of Baal as Ahab had, uh, that, that Ahab had made and set up in the temple in Samaria. And remember, his mother Jezebel was still alive at this time, and she obviously doesn't have much say anymore. However, the author's assessment of, of Jerem is still not good, for he tells us he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. This, of course, was the worship of golden calves, that Jeroboam, the first king of the, the divided kingdom of Israel, uh, in the north had set up. He had set up two golden calves, one in Dan in the north and one in Bethel in the south of Israel. So Joram was not 
in any stretch of the imagination a supporter of pure paganism, as his mother and father were, but he certainly was not a believer in the pure version of Yahwehism either. He most likely got quite uncomfortable when he heard this, the first two commandments read out aloud. He could cope with the rest, but the first two probably would have made him particularly uncomfortable. He was a compromiser, a middle-of-the-road man, a bit of the covenant and a bit of paganism mixed together, and hey presto, you get a solution that pleases nobody, but nobody gets particularly bothered about it either. Of course, these calves that they were set up were for the purpose of the worship of Yahweh, but they were not prescribed by Yahweh in his word. They were not the temple in Jerusalem where worship was supposed to take place. They did not have the correct prescription of priests and Levites and offering of sacrifices and the teaching of the law. It's a very watered-down version, if you like, of true Exodus-style religion for the Israelites. God had described in detail how he was to be worshipped, and these calves were not that detail by any stretch of the imagination. And the result is Joram here has a very misinformed view of God, and he, you know, he places God in a very comfortable Israelite religious box, keeps him at a safe distance where he can be wheeled out when needed, essentially. And there's a great, great danger for us all, you know, because we can all be like Joram here. In the sense that we all have a sort of mix-and-match religion at times. We claim to be Christians, yet very often Christ's claim over our whole lives is only limited to the visible aspects, what, people, what other people can see. Other areas, like our thought life or what we do with our free time, they are far beyond God's remit. We like to claim them for ourselves. We worship Yahweh on Sunday, but prefer the gods of materialism and pleasure during the week. We place Jesus in a box, take him out only when it suits us, or at least that's what we like to think, but the reality is of course very different. For there cannot be any sharing between Christ and mammon. Jesus demands every part of our lives, not just the bits we want to give him. And like Joram, we can end up with a kind of compromised faith where we externally subscribe to, to following Jesus and being his disciple. But in, in reality, if we truly examine ourselves, the cultural gods that surround us receive a considerable amount of our time, of our energy, and of our worship. So that's the first problem, the king of Israel himself. The next is the rebellion of the king of Moab. Now, the Moabites uh, are the descendants of that sordid affair in Genesis 19 between Lot and his daughters. The oldest daughter gave birth to a son whose name was Moab, and the Moabites are his descendants. And there was a very checkered history between the two nations, with them fighting each other very often. Moab had been, uh, at this time, Moab had been sub subdued by Ahab. Uh, and he was, uh, and they were in a kind of a vassal treaty. They were a, a minor party in a treaty. And the result was that they had to pay a yearly tribute to the king of Israel. This, this tribute was 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. That's a whole lot of sheep. But now that Ahab had died, he wasn't there anymore. The king of Moab saw that this was the opportune time to rebel and stop giving a considerable amount of his produce away to the king of Israel. 
And Ahaziah, of course, never did anything about this, and he didn't last long. Now Joram, as he becomes king, thinks it's high time that he put Moab in their place. No doubt a significant part of the reason for this, for going to war, was that he found himself in a similar situation to Alistair Darling at the moment. He was having a, a very hard time balancing the books. There was a very significant and large deficit from his loss of revenue. Economically, Joram would have lost a considerable amount of his capital. The loss with this, lo with this vast uh, loss of produce that would have been either used and they didn't have to buy it or sold on to make profit. So what does he do? Well, he marshals his troops. Time to go to war. And he goes and he asks the king of Judah, will he fight with him? And the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, this time, uh, of course, a, a godly king, Jehoshaphat, he says yes. Very similar to what he, is, he had already done in 1 Kings 22, where he went with Ahab to fight at Ramoth-Gilead. And as in 1 Kings 22, we find here that Jehoshaphat says of the very same phrase as he said to Ahab. He says, I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So he will match everything man for man, horse for horse that Israel are bringing into this war. And Joram asked him for some advice. What would be the best way to attack Moab? Jehoshaphat, of course, a much older, wiser man. So Joram wants some help. And he explains that the best route would be to go by the desert of Edom. If you imagine the, the, the land of Palestine, you've got Sea of Galilee, the River Jordan running down to the Dead Sea. Along the bottom of the Dead Sea, that area towards, heading towards Edom is the desert of Edom. So they're going round the bottom of the Red Sea. And not only does Judah come along, of course, with him, but they also bring Edom. And Edom, the Edomites were in a treaty with Judah. The king of Edom was a viceroy put in place by Jehoshaphat himself. So these band of merry warriors set off. But disaster overcomes them. The one thing that they need in the desert, they don't have water. They go on a seven-day long cut, and there's no water for the animals, let alone the soldiers. And now we come to the very heart of their problem. But notice, if you will, that something has been missing from this story so far. Something has been conspicuously absent from all that has happened. Any ideas? Well, where's Yahweh? Where's God? Here we have three kings all together. The godly Jehoshaphat, the pagan king of Israel, the king of Edom, all on the warpath, yet not once have they inquired of the Lord. Not once have they sought the Lord's will. Now you could understand that from the king of Israel, of course. But hi, what about, what about the king of Judah, the godly Jehoshaphat? Has he, has he become forgetful in his old age? For let me read to you what he said to Ahab before going into battle with him in 1 Kings 22. Notice the difference. Compare it. So he asked Jehoshaphat, that is Ahab, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth-Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. 
But this time, nobody has sought the Lord or inquired even if they should go in this venture at all. God has been ignored until now, that is. For once the problem becomes apparent, we have the reaction then of the king of Israel in verse 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? So after ignoring Yahweh, Joram now blames his sovereignty for this crisis. It's God's fault. He has done this to leave us as, as cannon fodder, so to speak, for the Moabites. And so the problem reaches his apex. Three kings in the wilderness, along with all their vast armies, all their animals, no water, and no hope of putting up any meaningful fight if the Moabites attack. And the king of Israel puts the blame squarely at the feet of Yahweh. Notice how that often happens. Maybe not as openly as you hear it here, but once things don't work out the way we've planned them, we often leave the blame with God's sovereignty. We ignore him, get in the jam, and then blame him for our own stupidity. We can be totally content living like practical atheists, as if God were not really there, and then once we get into a spot of bother, we start beating angrily on God's door. Or we ignore him, and we wheel him out only when we need him. Like Joram, here we, we never bother to consult God, but now that he's in dire straits, God is wheeled out, and for there's nowhere left for him to turn really, is there? God turns into a kind of last resort, which you only touch if you actually need it. The kind of EpiPen God that only is to be used in extreme situations. But let's turn to the resolution, to the solution of this problem. Joram despairs, but Jehoshaphat comes to his senses, and now he asks the question that he should have asked before this whole episode began. Is there no prophet of the Lord here? that we may inquire of the Lord through him. And an officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Saphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That is, he was Elijah's servant, which we know. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Jehoshaphat makes no attempt to place the blame on God, but rather seeks a prophet. He seeks the prophet, so he can know what the Lord's will is. And someone explains that Elisha is there, so they, and they, they set off to see him. And notice the fact that the kings go to see Elisha, not the other way around as you would have expected, which would have been more usual, but they go. They humble themselves. Nothing like a bitter, bit of bitter desperation to bring down the proud. And we see that these kings need a little word from the Lord. They need some grace. They need some light shed on their situation. That's why they go to Elisha. For he's the prophet. He speaks the word of the Lord. He delivers God's word. The same word that can save people, as we have saw. The same word that brings grace and provision, as we have seen. The same word that never fails, that always is fulfilled. They need it. But Elisha is scathing, scathing in his criticism of Joram when he meets him. What do, you, what do we have to do with each other? In other words, what are you doing here? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, prophets of Baal. 
You can't get any more blunt than that. Elisha goes straight for Joram and his failure to hold to the true worship of Yahweh. For it seems as though, though Joram here has taken away the sacred stone of Baal, he has not done away with Baalism altogether in, in Israel. And so Elisha sarcastically tells him, why don't you go and consult one of their prophets? Can they not help you? But Joram, still blaming God for the whole matter, reiterates his charge. No, it is the Lord that has brought us here to hand us over to the Moabites. Then Elisha's next remark is both totally scathing and yet, and yet it holds within it something which is incredibly wonderful. He says, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of, his, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. Elisha leaves Joram in no doubt that he should be left in that desert to die, without water, without hope. He is sinful, he is kept up with the sins of Jeroboam in worshipping the calves of Dan and Bethel. His ecumenical tendencies when it comes to religious devotion mean that he is beyond the help of the word of God. He's beyond the pale of no return. He's sinful. And that's the scary implication of what Elisha says here. It's possible to be beyond the help of God's word. If you're like Jehoram, only using God as a get-out-of-jail card, then you need to be careful. You need to beware. You see, Jehoram wanted Christ, but he didn't want to have to carry a cross after him. Jehoram wanted the atonement, but he didn't want the risen, ascended Lord whom he had to buy before. What about you? Do you like the benefits of the Christian life, but not the obedience that comes with it? But there's also something totally wonderful in this. If you look at it. For even though Joram did not deserve anything, he actually receives God's grace in its abundance. Notice what Elisha says. If I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. You see, it's because of the godly king Jehoshaphat that Joram actually receives God's grace and help in this total disaster. Because here was Joram. And he has been given what he did not deserve. For Elisha goes on and he brings the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Make the valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet the valley will be filled with water. You, your cattle, your animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And he will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city, every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs. And ruin every good field with stones. It's not just that he would give, God will give them what they need, i.e. water in the desert. That's an easy thing in his eyes. But they're going to get far more than they ever imagined. For they're going to get victory over Moab in battle. You see, God isn't stingy with his grace. We don't just get enough to do the job like a piece of Ikea furniture. You just get the bare minimum. You get far more than you ever dreamed. God gives us grace upon grace, an abundance of God's mercy, even to those who do not deserve it. You see, this story highlights for us the reality of the gospel. For we too are lost in a barren wilderness. We have rebelled and we have not been faithful to God. We fall short of the total commitment he desires, just like Joram. We too deserve nothing. But God provides us with his grace. 
and forgiveness. He pours out his blessing on us and his mercy overflows to us through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, the one who promises us the waters of life. And we get it, like Joram, because of another. We receive his grace because of another. Because of Jehoshaphat's descendant, the last king of the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's only when we stand with him that God takes any notice of us that we receive the forgiveness and the grace that we need. It's because of him that God's grace abounds to us that is lavished on us as sinners who rightly should perish in our sins. God brings us his word, his final word, the word that became flesh. And through him we receive one blessing after another, as John said in John 1. We drink of the streams of living water and are thirsty no more. You see, that's the difference that grace makes to these three helpless kings. They could command entire armies. They had myriads of servants running after them, but they couldn't make water when they needed it. They needed God's word of grace. They needed his intervention. They needed his rescue. And God's word brings the resolution to their problem. And what a resolution it brings. Verses 20 to 27, we see the result. First of all, there's water. Probably it had rained on the, the hills of Edom, and the water had flowed down the land in a kind of flash flood, filled the whole land. The ditches that they had dug would have been filled up. And these three kings, as far as they were concerned, they had water. Whatever way it was produced. Just as the word of God had said, there will be water. So it was. And more than that, we then see the two pieces of Moabite madness. The first piece, they see the water over the land, but make a mistake. They think it's blood. Edom is an area known for red sandstone. And they think, as this water, as they see it, Early in the morning, with the sun shining on it, it looks red. They think, ah, the alliance has fallen out. They've butchered each other in the night. Now's our chance. But they make a mistake. And they rashly charge in, thinking that they will have little or no resistance, only to be badly shocked and to find the Israelites there at full strength out to fight them until the Moabites have to run away. And they invade the land of Moab, and everything happens just as the word of the Lord through Elisha has said. God has delivered them into the Israel's hands. The only place left was the capital, Kirherseth. And they surround it as well. And then the second piece of Moabite madness, from the king of Moab himself. Firstly, he calls out the Moabite equivalent of the SAS, his 700 swordsmen, and he tries to get through the enemy lines, but that doesn't work. So in a last desperate, last ditch attempt to resolve the situation, he takes the crown prince, his own son, and he offers him as a sacrifice on the walls of the city to the Moabite god, Chemoth. No doubt he was trying to rouse this god to take action when all seemed so lost. And what happened next in verse 27 is the subject of much debate. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. Now it has cost many trees and many bits of paper and many hours writing to try and figure out what these verses have actually been saying. 
Most commentators offer four options, two of which are nonsense. The other two are possibilities. So let me give you them. Firstly, we have to ask, who is this? Who's the fury? Who's the wrath here from? First option is that the wrath and fury is, of, is that of the Moabites themselves. That they have been roused into some sort of uh, superhuman effort, some sort of religious fervor by the sight of their crown prince being sacrificed on the walls of their capital city. And this superhuman effort then drives the Israelites in a kind of last-ditch attempt. The other option is that the word translated in this last sentence, against, could also be translated upon, making the sentence this, the fury upon Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. That would make the meaning of the text to be that the fury was Israel's. Once they saw the sacrifice on the walls of the city, they were outraged and disgusted, if you like, and left the Moabites to it. How revolting. Personally, I think the latter is the better option. But no matter which interpretation we choose, I think here at the end of this story, again we see a wonderful picture of just how great the gospel really is and how devastating vain religion can be. For in this story, if we think about it, we've had two kings, both on the brink of destruction. The king of Israel in the desert, and now here, the king of Moab, on his last stand in his own capital city. But look at the difference that grace makes to the, the king of Israel's situation. He receives an abundant blessing, even though he didn't deserve it. But in stark contrast, we see the horrors of pagan religion. The king of Moab turned to religion in total desperation and has to sacrifice his own son in the walls of the city in the, hope, in the vain hope that he would rouse some capricious deity into action for him. We can see just how awful it is to be without grace. To be in that place where we have to somehow earn the favor of God, try and manipulate him into action for us. And how wonderful to be in that situation where we can rest in God's grace, in the gospel, where there's no need to have good works or manipulation in order to make God accept us. It's already done. You see, this message, this story gives us, it offers us a choice. It offers Israel here a choice. It offers the exiles in Babylon a choice. Do you want paganism? Do you want religion? Knowing just how costly it is? Or do you want Yahweh? Do you want Christ? Who is gracious? Who is the one who would rather sacrifice his own son for us? God makes the sacrifice. We receive the blessing that we don't deserve. Which would you prefer? Which would you turn to? The God who reveals himself in the gospel? The God of grace? Or turn to religion? The do-it-yourself mode? To try and somehow, some way, hopefully make yourself acceptable to God? There really is no comparison, I think. Yahweh provides us helpless sinners lost in the desert of our sin with the water of life. And how we should be thankful for it. 
Lord Jesus himself said in John chapter 7. He stood up in a loud voice. He said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. See, this is the reality of the gospel. God offers us his grace. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to work for it. It's offered to us wretched sinners who rebel, who worship other gods, who don't deserve it. But we receive it. There is no choice. God is truly great, abounding in love, rich in mercy. And let us pray that we will trust him and rest on his grace every day of our lives and never know what it is to turn again to the awful, awful ways of religion. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace that is offered to us, for the free forgiveness through his atoning death. How we thank you so much that you have given given this to us, even though we do not deserve it. And we ask, Lord, that as we go from this place, that we will evermore trust in your grace, trust your gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and help us never to turn back to vain religion, but always to look to him, Look to the one who offers us the streams of living water. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.